Trading in futures products entails significant risk of loss, which must be understood prior to trading and may not be appropriate for all investors. Good afternoon, everybody. Today is Sunday. It's February 4th. It's 5.44 p.m. Central Time. Guys, we're recording in the afternoon on Sunday. This is going to go out Monday for the public crowd. We're at the agmarket.net meeting in Nashville. Uh, Matt Bennett's here. Brian Split is here. Guys, thank you for allowing me to crash your party. Yep, thanks for being here, man. Excited to have you. Appreciate it. So we're going to do the podcast how we always do it. We're going to run through some news items. We're going to talk about them. Um, We do have a quick disclaimer. We'll show you guys in the crowd here. But this is our first story, and I've got some copy to read here. Usually Mackenzie would do this, but I'll do it today. CME soybean futures have erased almost all of the gains associated with last Tuesday's upside reversal. Your nearby March 24 contract lost 15 cents on Friday after a 19-cent loss on Thursday. Global pricing data continues to indicate that U.S. soybeans are overpriced compared to their competition in Brazil. News outlets reported last week that some U.S. buyers were importing soybeans from Brazil as a result of the price discrepancy. Brian, this chart sucks. Tell me about it. It does. Uh, so I think when you look at this chart specifically, you're going to automatically be drawn to that May low, uh, which was 11.45 and a quarter. Uh, I would say that there's going to be a very important level in between where we are now and that 11.45 and a quarter low. That was the low made in 2021. Uh, that was our fall low that year, and that was at 11.71 and a quarter. Uh, just so happens the 200-month moving average sits at that same exact price. Uh, so I think from a continuous chart standpoint, we're going to have some major yearly support at that 1170 zone. If we do break through that, then everybody's going to be talking about that Malo. We traded weather on several occasions. I mean, you had your crop scare high, really two different crop scare highs in the summer um, as far as the United States goes. And then that Brazil crop scare high was in November. Uh, Matthew, is there any hope here? You know, it looks pretty rough right now. I think the thing that was frustrating, you come out here Tuesday, and of course you post 20 cent plus gains, you reversed both corn and beans, but then no buyers showed up to support that reversal. So in essence, we're kind of out here in no man's land. Fundamentally speaking, it's a pretty tough environment uh, here at the conference. We've talked a little bit about some uh, stiff headwinds we've got. Global stocks are uh, not exactly uh, tight at this point, but there's still a lot of question marks with South American production. We don't know how, just how much the Brazilian crop's been hurt. So at this stage of the game, uh, you know, I guess I would say it doesn't look good. Uh, but as Brian said, there's some very good long-term support not far below the market, and I've got to think that we'll uh, at least be able to go down there and hold until we learn more about U.S. production in 24. We hope by the time the majority of the, the public crowd is listening to this on Monday morning that things look a little bit better. Uh, the next story is is one of those kind of doom and gloom soybean stories. China's poor pork demand um, is one of their economic issues. They're preparing for their Lunar New Year in China, which would typically bring increased pork consumption but demand is not what it typically is. Uh, pork, produ- pork prices rather have decreased by about a fifth compared to a year ago, but they've got wage declines in China, so the consumer spending just isn't what it would normally be. They have some deflationary concerns. China's pork production expanded to its highest level in nine years last year. Pork consumption fell by almost 2%. The Chinese government purchased three times last year for its uh, strategic reserve to support prices. Uh, Bloomberg had a couple of cool charts here. This is um, their hog slaughter, which hit an all-time high. And then this is like a margin type chart, which doesn't look good. I think the demand problems when it comes to soybeans, especially as it relates to China, is the biggest buyer. Like This is one of the biggest things out there. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think whenever you look, for instance, at this uh, soybean meal market, we just continue to step off a ledge here. Uh, bottom line is, though, China's demand is no longer increasing. So for several years, you know, out to, to talking about markets on the speaking circuit, you know, we would talk about the fact that China continues exponential demand. So you had world stocks at all-time highs on some of these years, yet you, we were able to rally because demand was so robust. At this stage of the game, Chinese demand is 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 just flat out flatlined. I mean, we're not seeing any more increase in demand, and we still have continued uh, increase in global production as far as soybean uh, goes. So, I guess my personal thought is uh, Chinese demand is not going to be the savior that it had been over the last ten to fifteen years, and we certainly need to see more uh, new demand for for soybeans and soybean oil and meal. I would like to say that some of this is cyclical too. When you think about the Chinese hog herd, they did just liquidate a large amount of their hog herd, and that's shown in that chart with the uh, the, the amount of slaughter that we've had. Uh, so I do think at some point that cycle will reverse. The pendulum swings in the other direction. They're going to want to rebuild their herd. Uh, that could be a friendly story down the road, but that is not the narrative currently. USDA still has record Chinese soybean imports penciled for this marketing year, but I think maybe some people wanted to see a bigger expansion. I don't know. Let's go to uh, everybody's favorite group of traders. Fund traders continue to hold a histor historically large net short position across the grain complex. We had our commitment of traders report out on Friday. During the week ending last Tuesday, which was January 30th, fund traders were net sellers of 4,000 contracts of corn. They've got a net short of almost 280,000, which is the largest since mid-2020. Funds were net sellers of 5,000 contracts of soybeans. The net, sh net uh, short there of 102,000 contracts is the largest since early 2020. Funds were net buyers of 3,000 contracts of SRW wheat. We've got some charts here. Um, so this is uh, the funds, corn, soybeans, and wheat, SRW wheat combined, and that's a hefty net short position. I think you were right, Joe. It is kind of a net shit. Yeah, I, uh, I. And so, but when you think back, to, you you had mentioned the the largest short position since mid 2020, and then what happened uh, when they started to liquidate that, and there was a major demand driven event after COVID, and, and China came in and bought a lot. Uh, but we are scratching the surface of some of the major major short positions that the funds have had previously. Uh, there was a year where they got short about 300,000, so we're about 20,000 away from that. Um, and this 280 was a jump of what? 15,000 from the previous week, but futures only went down about four cents. So maybe the, the weight of their selling is starting to lose a little bit of its emphasis. Um, and so that's something you want to see is if they continue to sell, but the market isn't breaking uh, much as they're selling, that's probably a first clue. Uh, and then you think about the, the current record, which I believe is about 325,000 contracts. So we're very, very close to uh, some of these previous large short positions. Uh, I think for the time of year, uh, in January, 225 was the last time they were about this short. And when they were that short, they actually went from short 225 to long 225,000. Took about, what, I think five to six weeks for them to do that. Uh, but I would caution you about being bullish if that were to happen this year, because in a similar situation, there was a lot of producer-owned grain that was ready to sell on rallies. So that net shift in, in the fund position of 450,000 contracts amounted to about a 35-cent rally in the futures. When you look at corn specifically, one thing that does happen every year is that every year, at least on this chart and going back a little bit further, the funds get long corn every year, and it's not a guarantee or a prediction that they're going to do it this year, but it happens like every year. Matt, what if they get long corn in 2024, what's, what's the reason? Uh, well, there could be a variety of reasons, but uh, obviously South America, you know, you're planting less acres in 
uh, the safrina crop, first of all. Second of all, it's going to get in the ground as in totality a little bit later than what they would prefer. And so obviously, if uh, like Eric Snodgrass was telling us at our conference, if they turn off dry uh, through April, it could definitely be a big factor. Now, the only thing I would caution us on uh, that Brian was alluding to is that, you know, yes, the funds are extremely short corn, 280,000 contracts. Uh, but at the same time, the U.S. producers probably long 10 billion bushels of corn. And so obviously on any sort of a rally type effort, a couple different things will happen. You'll see hedge pressure uh, as far as uh, basis is concerned. though, no, you're going to be hard pressed to get a 25, 30 cent rally. If you get it and we're blessed with it, I don't think that you're going to see that kind of cash price improvement because the uh, bottom line is uh, elevators won't be able to handle it and they'll have to widen bases. So I think a couple different things could happen, but by all means, I think we're going to be swimming up current. Okay. So we've, we've said it this way before and I'll lay it out again. If you were to assume the farmers got a third of last year's corn crop priced, call it 15 billion bushels. That's two thirds unpriced. That's 10 billion. That's 2 million contracts of Chicago Board of Trade corn that is not actually offered above the market, but will ultimately be sold at some point in time. So when you look at this fund position of 280,000, is that big? Yeah, it's big, but the farmer position is much more substantial than that. To look at soybeans in a vacuum, I mean, funds don't like really love to get short, short soybeans a lot, but here we are. Right, and I think uh, much similar to corn, we're scratching the surface of some of the previous uh, uh, larger short positions that they've had. Yeah. They do spend the majority of their time long soybeans. Uh, I think, a, what was it, maybe about 160,000 contracts is I believe their record short position. So um, we're, we're very close to that. And, and uh, again, the thing that I look at right now that's going to be a, a tough thing to deal with moving forward is the, uh, the discount that Brazil has to the U.S., um, and so it might need to be some sort of a, a harvest low that's made uh, where those uh, values kind of make their lows and then start to creep up in conjunction with our values coming down to meet a little bit in the middle uh, where we start to re reach a little bit of parity there. All right, let's jump to South America. A heat wave in Argentina is threatening crops. They've had a heat wave really for the last four or five days, and it looks like it's going to last for another couple of days. Crop and soil conditions have deteriorated amid temperatures reaching 104 degrees. According to the Rosario Grain Exchange, soybeans classified as being in the good to very good uh, condition, or good to excellent condition rather, have dropped to 65, down from 90. I don't know if the 90 was ever a real number. But uh, the thing that's going to be the big deal as we get into this week is that there's rain in the forecast. And we kind of knew this going home on Friday that there was going to be some rain starting like Wednesday this week. But this Euro model, and I, I pulled this up like before we started taping here. So this is Sunday afternoon. If you guys are watching Monday morning, this might be a little bit different. But the rains in Argentina look fairly convincing to me at least. The stuff that's four or five days out is typically pretty reliable, whereas beyond that, it's not. So it, is this a bearish headwind to start the week, maybe? Oh, absolutely. You know, if we do end up getting that kind of rain. But the thing is, we got to get there, first of all. And we all know uh, when you're in the summer-type tendency uh, in the U.S., you never really know whether these things are going to show up or not. Now, this looks like a very convincing system. We have to also remember that Argentina was absolutely shellacked last year whenever it came to their production. And so it really affected global production, down 25 million tons from a normal-sized crop in Argentina. And so, you know, if they do produce a normal-sized crop, they 
this year, you're adding 25 million tons to the soybean balance sheet globally. Uh, you really need to see a massive shift lower as far as Brazilian production is concerned. So if this goes ahead and verifies, I've got to think that's at least a 50 million ton crop right now, which in my opinion is going to be another one of those headwinds in the face of this soybean market. So USDA has got Argentina at 50, and there were a lot of people that were talking 52, maybe even 54. Mm -hmm. Maybe with this dry spell, it's back to 50. On this chart, I've got Brazil at 150, which I think is a fair number, and Argentina at 50, and that's a record by a pretty big margin. It is. Um, you know, trying to be a little optimistic here, I, I think that potentially the January numbers that we got from the USDA as far as world production might be the biggest numbers that we see moving forward. Um, they're still way too high on Brazil. Uh, arguably, they could come down easily 5 million tons. Uh, 7 million tons. I don't think many people would argue with that. You start getting under 150, it becomes an interesting conversation. Uh, but I think there was also a race to increase the Argentine production number. And maybe with some of the heat and the, the dryness that we're seeing right now, we're taking the top end off. So I, I, I have a hard time thinking that Argentina is going to go much higher than they were. Uh, and maybe, depending on how weather pans out here and how it evolves, they could come down a little bit. So I think we've seen the highest South, South American production of soybeans in, in the January report. And keep in mind, guys, on this chart, I've got Brazil adjusted down to 150, which is quite a bit lower than where the government entities are. So that's a good segue. We have a crop report on Thursday. This will be out at 11 a.m. Central Time. Your February report is typically not the biggest market mover in the world. I mean, we're not really looking for anything big in terms of U.S. crop estimates or acreage. What we are looking for potentially would be something on the demand side of the U.S. balance sheets uh, or maybe the South American production numbers, maybe Chinese demand. Anything you guys see coming out of this? Yeah, I think you could probably take uh, maybe a little bit more of a stab at ethanol. I mean, bottom line, maybe you go up another 25, I don't know. But I think what everyone's going to be looking for is what are they going to do with South American production? I mean, the thing is... and. It, it's not the final number, but that's what computer models are going to trade. People get really frustrated with the type of reaction that we see with these markets, but it's an algorithm designed uh, to trade specific numbers. So if they come in with a 152 and the trade's expecting a 150, that's going to be viewed as bearish, and everyone needs to understand that's just how the market's going to work. We can be frustrated about it, but I always tell people you can't fight City Hall unless you want to go broke. Brian, you expect any surprises? Uh, it's hard to expect a surprise on the February report. As you mentioned, it's typically not one of the major market moving ones, but um, I, I think we could see a little bit of uh, insult added to injury as far as the, uh, the soybean export demand. Um, and I know there's been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, importing soybeans from Brazil into the East Coast. And uh, we also have to realize that the USDA has a very large number of imports domestically uh, already plugged in. Uh, they're at 30 million bushels right now. That's above, above and beyond anything we've seen for the last, I don't know, probably close to decade, if not longer. Um, and so typically you're going to see maybe 15 to 20 million bushels. So um, the USDA is expecting imports to be large. Uh, and that is baked into the balance sheet already. I had one chart that I wanted to show you guys here, and this is more big picture, but this is USDA data. The best way to gauge supply and demand, it's not the carryout number. It's not 2 billion bushels or 2.2. It's stocks to use ratio. That's a better way to gauge supply and demand. And the reason the corn market sucks it basically is because of this. We went from a period, a three-year period, where we had stocks to use sub 10%. And now we're going to be back closer to 15%. And the last time we were at 15%, United States stocks to use was when? It was 2014, 15, 16, 17. The markets were not good 
during those time frames. The market was, you know, $3 on the low end to maybe, what, 4 on the upper end. The big question for me, and I've told you guys this a million times, the big question for me is, like, what's a cheap corn price in 2024 in a post-COVID, post-inflation environment? Everything else on the plan is 30% more expensive than it used to be, right? So does that mean that the low end of the corn market is now... 20 to 30% higher than it used to be is is where $3 used to be cheap and you're like say post ethanol pre covid is $4 cheap now is 420 cheap I don't I don't I don't know yeah, I mean, that's a tough call. I think the thing that we have to remember, stocks use definitely is going up significantly. The other thing, just just uh, one thing I've been pointing out, you go from a 136 uh, to a 216, Joe, and I mean, that's a 50% plus increase in stocks year on year. Yeah. And so it's a massive increase in how much is available. So your stocks to use ratio is what your world grain originators are going to want to look at. That typically is going to be what uh, decides price action moving forward. There's no doubt that these are bearish numbers we're talking about. The big question is how much is this is already baked into the market? And so your question's valid. What's low? Uh, are we going to get down to a $4 type level? I mean, I've seen several uh, people that's got sub $4 cash prices right now. I mean, and I think that those could become more prevalent as this calendar year plays out. I don't hope that they do, and I certainly wouldn't celebrate it. I'm just uh, afraid that if we don't get some sort of a igniter, if you will, for this uh, fun short to, to get lifted, that it could be pretty tough sailing. Brian, what's the cheap corn price this year? You know, um, I, Jim McCormick will often talk about the price of a Ford F-150, you know, five, six, seven years ago and, and what it costs now. And so you wonder if goods in general have reached that new plateau. You go get a, a frozen pizza at the grocery store and it used to be five bucks, now it's 10. So I would like to think that, you know, you know and I, I think in terms of charts, so if I think about a corn chart from uh, that 2014 to the 2020 period, and we had a lot of those highs we'd mentioned around 440, 450, uh, hopefully that old resistance is new support after we punch through. Uh, my, the one caveat to that would be that we didn't make new highs above those previous 2012 highs. Um, so with inflation, with everything that happened and the inability to make new highs, leads me to believe that we still could potentially go back and revisit prices in the $3 range. People thought following 2012, we were at a new plateau and we were not. So, I mean, you, you just never know. Uh, last thing we got today, uh, the S&P 500 stock market as a whole uh, rose to a new record on Friday. The S&P was up 1.1%. Uh, the increase was attributed to impressive quarterly gains from uh, tech companies. I think Amazon and Facebook were out. We had a better than expected jobs report. Um, the chance, interest rates are a big deal for you guys. I know maybe some of you guys don't care about the stock market as much as maybe the average Joe walking down the street, but there's now only a 38% chance of a rate cut in March. Um, I think the economy is good personally. I'm not a doomsdayer. What do you think? It sure seems okay for the time being. I think what uh, concerns me a little bit is that, you know, the difference between, for instance, the amount of people employed and how many jobs there are, because there is a disparity there. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, at the same time, we are at a meeting with producers. Uh, the thing that concerns me, I guess, is that interest rates are higher than they've been for a while, and that it's obviously costing a fortune to put a crop out. It's cheaper to put 24 corn crop out than the 23 crop, but it's not cheap to put it out by any stretch of the imagination. So I think interest rates are going to be a big concern for the farm economy. I don't know that I'm a big buyer of the Dow at 38.5 or whatever we closed at on Friday, uh, but at the same time, uh, I don't know that I'd want to be taking a position on either side of it right now. I look at that chart right now, and that's a, a very bullish breakout. My mind is just doing some math, and it projects to about 7,000. That's probably a number that it hits over the course of multiple years. 
but the fact that we're making new highs right now, um, you know, and, and there's been a lot of talk about the uh, weighting of, of equities versus commodities that we're at uh, some record levels of, of the equity valuations versus commodities that makes commodities look cheap. Hopefully that's the case. Uh, but there's been an awful lot of money on the sidelines waiting. The fund manager was very wrong uh, late in the year about the equity market, looking for a bigger pullback. They were very short. They had to change course, go long. Uh, and there's a lot of money that's still primed to come into the market at this point. And make no mistake about this. The, the farm economy that a lot of you guys deal with is much, much different than the economy that the average Joe walking down the street deals with. I mean, for you guys, think of it this way. For you guys, if crude oil went back to 150 bucks, that probably mean corn isn't at four and a half anymore, right? Correct. It would probably mean soybeans aren't at 11 or 12 anymore. So it would probably be a good thing in net for a lot of you guys, whereas for the average consumer, if gas was $5, that's very bad. It would be bad for you, but it'd be a net positive overall. Guys, we don't have anything else to talk about today. Usually we'd run outside markets and cattle and stuff, so I don't have anything else to say unless you guys do. No, absolutely. Just thanks for being here, bud. I appreciate you guys letting me uh, uh, tag along here. Guys, um, the, our podcast is every single day. It's free on YouTube, free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, so check it out. Thanks for having me.